also about the erasure of Palestinian voices. It's also about the erasure of Palestinian stories, the complete deletion, right, of Palestine from the landmass, from the map, and from ultimately the political imaginary. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Today on the Electronic Intifada podcast, we're talking about what happened in late April when major tech companies yet again shut down an event featuring the Palestinian resistance icon Leila Khaled and others, this time at UC Merced, and the university has so far refused to challenge the censorship by these private corporations. We're joined today by Omar Zaza. Uh, they're a member of US ACPI, the US Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel and the Palestinian Youth Movement. And they've been following this issue for a while. Also with us is Salim Shahade, a grad student at UCLA um, and a former student at San Francisco State. Um, Omar and Salim, thank you so much for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So um, bring us up to date on what happened uh, in late April at UC Merced. Um, earlier, uh, seven months ago um, in September of 2020, um, Zoom, YouTube, and Facebook um, deleted uh, and would not allow um, you know, the, the pre-event page and then the event itself um, to go ahead. And this was an event with Leila Khaled, Ronnie Casserles, and other members of anti-apartheid um, activist movements, scholars, um, talk about what happened just you know a, a week or so ago, and um, you know the the uh, kind of the, the general atmosphere of like these Silicon Valley tech companies being able to censor events at public universities. Yeah, thanks. Maybe Omar, I'll start here. Um, so, um, yeah, so my connection to San Francisco State, yes, I graduated back in 2017, but I've stayed on board as part of the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diasporas program working with Dr. Abab Abdelhadi. So these, so the event that, the events that you're referencing started back in um, the fall. Um, the... They actually have an earlier history, and I guess mm -hmm. I'll mention it briefly to get into how it formed, is that um, there were a series of, we have a series of open classrooms under the title of Teaching Palestine uh, at San Francisco State University in the Ahmed program under Dr. Abdelhadi. So she incorporates it as part of the Ahmed curriculum, as part of her scholarship and, and, and public advocacy and all these different works. Um, and she collaborates as in the Teaching Palestine project with other um, activists, scholars, um, you name it, right? And one of these iterations was a joint program with Dr. Tomomi Kinakawa from Women and Gender Studies uh, at San Francisco State University. And there were a series of events that were put together and the students absolutely loved it. So um, the, the event that was supposed to take place in September of 20, uh, 2020 uh, was under the umbrella of, of um, critical uh, women and gender studies, mixing it with Ahmed studies as part and parcel of like what Ahmed studies does. And it wasn't the first collaboration that they had done. They had done others in the past. This was the first that was targeted. 
um, by um, by the Zionist pressures and by the um, resulting you know huge tech companies and uh, kind of in sick you know what happened in the fall also happened in in uh, last week where you know first you know we we produce the flyer we send it out there's uh, there's noise being made about it people are signing up I believe in September we had over 1500 people sign up before Zoom uh, uh, canceled the event um, and what happened was a lot of these you know Zionist organizations started um, just smearing, just absolutely smearing the event, smearing Leila Khalid, smearing Dr. Blahadi, smearing the Ahmed program for putting it together. And they started writing letters to everybody, right? So they would send letters to San Francisco State. They would send letters to Zoom. They would send letters to Facebook. They would send letters to the congressional members. They would send letters to, you know, you name it. They, they were writing op-eds. They were going all out. We ended up finding out that, um, among one of the strategies they've taken is that there's this like what they, th this app called act il um and essentially what it is is it gets this huge database of people or huge listserv of people to you just click a button and then it auto sends whatever right. they call them of, missions yeah <laughs> yeah and so yeah. That, I, I believe there were I, I think the last figure we saw on it was about nineteen thousand kind of active uh, users engaged in the Leila Khaled event, uh, the, it's a Who's Narrative event. So 19,000 people on the ACT.io website were sending in all these you know, missions, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, and it had an impact, right? So what ended up happening first was Zoom, Zoom's lawyers contacts the CSU systems lawyers, and then it goes down the the chain of command, if you will, because you know these universities are corporate structures at this point, public or not, right? Um, and it goes to the provost of San Francisco State University, then sends a joint email to Dr. Abdelhadi and Dr. Kinakawa. Actually, I don't know if it's the same email or this in the same thread or two emails, but and in any case, the provost sends the email uh, informing them that Zoom's lawyers has contacted the CSU and informing them of the allegations that uh, of material support for terrorism and suggests that both of them seek legal counsel. Wow. Not, you know, not that the university is gonna provide the legal counsel, that they seek independent legal counsel. Okay, so multiple issues going on. One, right. it's the fear tactic. It's the, you know, we're, we're accusing you of material support for terrorism. Um, the second is you better lawyer up. And the third is we're not gonna provide you that lawyer, okay? Um, and so kind of then, then, uh, you know, there's a, there's a large, um, the attack, the legal attacks against Palestine scholars and activists is not new. So there's a body, right. The, you know, people are aware of these situations. So, you know, the call was made, uh, for legal support. Um, there were, you know, uh, a number of, uh, you know, activist lawyers got on board and began kind of. Um, interpreting the matter. And they said, listen, like there is absolutely no crime being done. This is meritless. These accusations are absolutely meritless. Um, and not only that, the material support clause is in and of itself, like, you know, th this, this egregious, you know, you know, relic of the USA Patriot Act, right? And we know, we know the terrible things that the USA Patriot Act has done, right? It, it is, you know, it, 
it's it's not a good thing to say the least, right? Um, it has led to mass incarceration, mass surveillance, mass policing, um, you know, mass death. I mean, it's you know th these things are being used as kind of legit legitimizing of kind of the violent apparatus of the state force, which you know, Omar, you can talk more about. But in any case, so they're trying to bring it here. So the university's response was to San Francisco states. And you, I say this because you Seymour said, followed the pattern exactly. The, the academic approach was that this is academic freedom. We will, we, will, we will let the event go on with caveat because the other academic approach was we, we don't agree with their speech. Their speech is anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. Their speech is hatred, but we're going to protect the speech. Mm -hmm. And this is the same thing that they do with white supremacy on campus, right? It's the same. And so in that, in that, in that one stroke, you know, they say they're going to protect our academic freedom and people congratulate them for it, but at what cost? Because they're saying that these people are terrorists, these people are terrorist supporters, and these people are anti-Semite, but we're going to accept them nonetheless, right? So it's, it was it completely, completely inappropriate response in terms of, in terms of um, how they conceptualize our, uh, our narratives, right, and what we were teaching. On top of that, what the university then did was held a vigil, a vigil for um, Jewish students to discuss anti-Semitism, where they invited, I think, like ADL, uh, Campus Hillel, um, I believe the Israeli consulate also was part of it. The university provost was a uh, provost, the president spoke and the provost office, as well as the equity, diversity, and inclusion office co-sponsored this event, right? So essentially the university is pushing that line is that we, we, we hate what they're saying, you know, we hate what these Palestinians are saying. We hate, you know, don't support the Palestinians. Um, but we're going to let it happen because we're so, we're so, we're, uh, we're so, you know, whatever they want to call themselves, right? <laughs> um, it's a free and, speech, allegedly. Right. right. Free, yeah. While they're smearing us and, and basically putting us in the same box as white supremacy. They're delegitimizing right? you is what they're doing. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. And so then what happened was we decided to push the university um, on many fronts, but one of the fronts was to say, give us an alternative platform, okay? We said, if we were in person and let's say, you know, a, a water pipe breaks in the building, you're gonna relocate my classroom. You're gonna give me another classroom, okay? We don't agree with Zoom, what was Zoom said about shutting down our event because they, they did shut down the event the morning of, uh, but, we're going to say, give us an alternative platform that has the same capacities that can reach the 1500 people that all the, da, 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 da. the university's response was, we don't have the technological capacity to do that. You can't use, they're, they're contracted with, with uh, I think Microsoft Teams. So like, well, you can't use Teams for San Francisco's uh, policies. You can't use Teams for course um, construction. Uh, Instruction, yeah, it's not it's not intended for that. It's intended for like team building or whatever. So they said, why don't you use your personal Microsoft uh, Mic uh, Microsoft Skype account? Use your personal mm -hmm. Skype account, and then go ahead and get a third party system or download a third party software integrated into the Skype your personal Skype that would allow for streaming, and then stream it to your personal, you know, social media site like Facebook or whatever. And we're like, listen, this is the morning of the event. 
what? (laughs) I don't know how to integrate third-party software to allow Skype to go and like, I don't know how to do this, right? Uh, Do it for us. They can't do it for us because it's not technically, then they say, well, they can't do it because it's not technically San Francisco property because it's not San Francisco software, right? So now it becomes outside of the bounds of the AT. So now they've done their duty by giving us alternative that has, but then they also have done it in a way that they actually don't have to provide any support whatsoever because they don't own any of the software rights to the things that they've just suggested to us. So now basically they've done nothing, right? They've done nothing to help us. And, and so what we ended up doing was we're like, okay, we're just gonna go, uh, we ended up buying another software out of our own pocket um, that had these things integrated um, and StreamYard. And, and what we ended up doing was using that to then go through um, uh, Facebook and YouTube channel. And we got all of our morning up, we're texting everybody, can we get your login information? Um, your co-host of this event, can we go ahead and broadcast on your YouTube channel, on your Facebook, everybody, right? All these different orgs. Everybody's like, yes, go, 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 go do it. We start 23 minutes into it. They just shut it down. I remember they that. Pull it from yeah. Facebook. Yeah. They pull it from YouTube. They pull it from all these different things. Till this day. So then what ended up happening was we got all these warnings, right? Facebook sent me all these warnings. YouTube, YouTube didn't, YouTube didn't even send a warning. YouTube froze us. Like it's been months. Till this day, I can. Uh, the Ahmed, uh, the Ahmed YouTube channel is frozen. I cannot live stream on the YouTube channel on Ahmed six months for six months and more. And I, what was interesting was we went through every process. So we got the notification. I appealed it. The appeal was denied. Uh, then we went through and the, they said that their judgment is that they're going to freeze our live stream for, I think like, two, like 30 days or some, some, some period of time. The day after I went in, tried the live stream, nothing. Six months later, tried the live, nothing it's they've even you know what they've told us they're going to do isn't even what they've done they've, they've just been a perpetual freeze um so now what they did fast forward to uh last week is we went through the same process we're like okay we'll we'll do the same thing we did last time we'll go on facebook we'll we can't use youtube but we'll we'll on our facebook page we made the we made a uh we didn't want to use Zoom, but we wanted to have some sort of kind of like place where we could kind of collect names so that we could email them saying, go to this link. Eventbrite, Eventbrite um, shut us down. Um, we tried the UC Merced Zoom first. UC Merced's uh, Zoom account shut us down. Um, and I'll go back to this because there was a, a new contract that Zoom signed with the UC that should have actually prevented this. Um, but it actually shouldn't have because the the way that they structured it was intentional so that when it came about Palestine again, they could censor it. So it wasn't, they they did it to protect other issues, but when it came to Palestine, it was strategic and that they wrote in an exception so they could literally do this again. Um, But anyway, uh, Eventbrite got taken down, Zoom got taken down, um, the Facebook now our whole channel on Facebook is gone like it's not like frozen like it's not like we can't even edit it like it's gone like they deleted it they unpublished it so um that means the years of archive that we have on the Facebook channel is gone and you're like well why would an academic program use Facebook as a academic archive like that doesn't like what do you 
that's what it's come to when, when the sense that there has been years and years and years and years of attacks and undermining of the Ahmed program and Dr. Zahadi, where in order for us to get our content out there, in order for us to actually like use things that are like to reach, you know, the, our audiences reach, you know, those who are part of our classrooms is we went to social media. So we would have a webinar, we'd have an event, and this is even pre-COVID, right? We'd, we'd do an event online. So because there are people from across the world who watch these things, right? It's not just, you know, those who have access to San Francisco State on a nine to five schedule. Like we're like, no, 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 like that's not the way the world works, right? So um, years of video archives just removed, taken down, unpublished, um, gone. And so now there's a push to get Facebook to reinstate the Ahmed page um, not only so that we can kind of reach our audiences again through that platform, but also to preserve, to get back the archive that's now gone. I mean, interviews, um, webinars, con- everything, everything gone. Um, Omar, did you want to? Well, uh, maybe Omar, you can talk a little bit about the 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 um, uh, the Zoom guidelines that were that Salim just mentioned, and the caveat that they inserted in there for um, for Palestine related issues. Yeah, that's I mean that's that's significant. Tell us tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, you know what's what's interesting about this whole thing is you know the initial reason given for not letting the event proceed, as Salim mentioned, was you know. Leila Khaled's presence, you know, and her affiliation with a quote unquote known terrorist organization, right? In reality, you know, again, for the reasons Salim mentioned, like this argument and application of potential material support charges and enforcement of censorship based on that is completely baseless because, you know, the event itself is whose narrative is gender, justice, and liberation. So, you know, Leila Khaled, along with all the other panelists, is coming to talk about the interconnection between. Um, you know, anti-colonial liberation, gender justice and liberation, and ultimately the interconnections across different movement, movements for anti-colonial liberation throughout history, right? Um, but secondly, you know, because these things were ultimately baseless at the legal level, what had happened was you sort of, Zoom had crossed this Rubicon where they became ultimately the content sensor of, you know, academic speech, of academic programming. And that's why I think, you know, in September after this happened, you had a big mobilization, obviously, from those of us, you know, in the Palestine movement, Palestine Solidarity Movement, we're trying to promote it and talk about it as much as we could. But you also had places like the AAUP talking about how this is a huge infringement on academic speech, because what you had was a private tech company saying what can and cannot be allowed to, you know, to proceed as pedagogical material, right, Um, which is a very, very dangerous precedent to set. Now, the other kind of, you know, sort of uh, frustrating irony of all of this is that, you know, as this initially, when it seemed like the UC Merced event might be allowed to proceed, you know, maybe there was a day or so where there was a bit of uncertainty about that, you know, it seemed like, okay, maybe finally there's a realization that some kind of, uh, you know, something has been transgressed, this was an overstep, we can kind of go back to the days of no more content moderation, and indeed, Zoom released a statement saying we're going to refrain from content moderation when it comes to you know, academic um, programming, but, you know, they had three caveats, actually, um, and I actually have them right in front of me. So what they said was, Zoom will only act on reports alleging content-related violations of our community standards or terms of service that come from the meetings host or the account owner. So it'll only act on content-related violations, 
unless three points. The first point, Zoom determines there is legal or regulatory risk to Zoom if it does not act. Point two, the report alleges an immediate threat to the physical safety of any person. Or point three, the meeting or webinar is unrelated to the institution's academics or operations. And to me in particular, the third one is especially astounding because this is Zoom assuming the authority to say what is and is not relevant to an academic institution, right? So, you know, again, I can't say enough. I really think we should not decenter Palestine from this because this is first and foremost about Palestine. But the implications of this, I think, are very, very staggering because we are in a moment where private tech companies, profit-driven private tech companies, have taken it upon themselves to directly censor a classroom and give themselves the authority to do that, right? Um, and lastly, you know, I think the interconnection to the deletion of the Amit Studies Facebook page, as Salim mentioned, also on April 13th, is very important when we think of the question of Palestine, because, you know, as you know, um, the Zionist colonization of Palestine, obviously, it's about the elimination of Palestinians, it's about the, you know, physical removal of Palestinians and ethnic cleansing, but it's also about the erasure of Palestinian voices, it's also about the erasure of Palestinian stories, the complete deletion, right? of Palestine from the landmass, from the map, and from ultimately the political imaginary. And so what's happening now as these technologies become more streamlined, as the forces of surveillance, capitalism, you know, and for-profit white supremacy become more and more entrenched, they are directly acting on this imperative, you know, in sort of ways that utilize new technology for the same kind of violent means of resistance and erasure. Yeah. Of, yeah, of those who resist erasure, I should say. Um Let's talk a little bit about how, I mean, what, you know, maybe, maybe people like don't grasp enough the significance of these private corporations being able to be arbiters of what can and cannot be taught or talked about um, in academic settings. And if Zoom and Facebook and YouTube continue to get away with this, um, and be so, um, you, you know, be, be, like they capitulate so easily to, you know, the Israeli government, um, for example, which funds uh, that app that Salim was talking about earlier, act.il, um, Israel lobby groups here in the U.S., um, and, and lawmakers who, you know, are, are uh, you know, allied with Israel uh, lobby organizations, like if, if those if, if that becomes kind of a, a standard, what does that mean for other liberation movements and other topics that, um, you know, that, that might not be favorable to um, <laughs> these like corporate tech giants? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I would say, and then Salim, if you'd like to add, uh, feel free to jump in. But for me, it's really going to be a domino effect. I mean, you know, what we've seen from this new statement that Zoom released is they've already effectively codified their ability to decide what is and isn't relevant to academic programming. So, you know, and I think really we're going to see, you know, sort of an ongoing policing, repression and silencing of genuine anti-colonial knowledge production, right? And, um you know, what's I think so important about, you know, a project like Ahmed Studies and about, you know, the collaborations that Ahmed Studies has had with programs like, you know, Women and Gender Studies 
program at San Francisco State and all of the amazing panelists is that also that this was free, right? But let's not forget that this was programming that was open to anybody who just wanted to see it, who wanted to learn, who wanted to hear about these histories. So, you know, when I say anti-colonial programming and pedagogy, I don't just mean, you know, in content, something that talks about a history of liberation. It's also something that tries to realize through praxis, right? Kind of challenge the stranglehold that um, private companies have, you know, that copyrights have, that all of these forces that try to really um, instill a kind of intellectual and educational apartheid in the larger culture at large, challenging that through a praxis that's also anti-colonial, I think we're going to continue to see a repression and a policing of that. You know, if anything, efforts like this need to be lauded and they need to be seen as really at the forefront of challenging, you know, the ongoing privatization of, you know, intellectual work, of education and of academia, you know. Um, but I definitely think, you know, it's not gonna bode well for anything that is inherently anti-colonial, you know, in its bents um, moving forward. So I definitely think now is the time more than ever for the, all of us who profess to have anti-colonial ethos to do any kind of work that is sufficiently challenging Palestinian colonization, you know, um, the colonization of Black and Indigenous peoples all across the world, the time is now to really stand against this repression. Yeah. Yeah, Salim, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I just think that also when we're talking about like what what's happening in the classroom is that this is, it is a fight to even have those classrooms in the first place, right? And I think that this is what's, you know, when we're talking about these private companies and, the, and as Omar, you were talking about the privatization of the university is that Ahmed started in well, 26, two, 2006, 2007. And when Dr. Blahedi came there, she signed you know, a memorandum of understanding part of like her hiring contract with the university that she would come with uh, three faculty members that they, the university would hire to build up the Ahmed program because we understand that one person is not a program. It cannot be, right? You need, you, need a, you need a body, you need a collective to constitute a program. We're in 2021. She's the only uh, professor in Ahmed studies. We have a few lectures, you know, sometimes, you know, other times they fire lecturers at a heart in, in a second, right? Uh, which happened, you know, especially which has been happening over time, right? So why I say this is because like, for instance, they just cut um, Ahmed um, summer classes. We're not gonna, there are not gonna be, uh, the university has officially cut the Ahmed classes for the summer, right? So now when we're talking about what is what Zoom is doing to censor a webinar, it's very important, but it's part of the larger web of what the universities are doing, right? They have, they have essentially like de they've, they've defunded the Ahmed Studies program. They've refused to hire tenure track faculty members. In 2009, we were so close to getting a tenure track faculty member. Searches went out for the hire. Searches went out for the hire. Then what ended up happening, there was, a there was an event, a joint event of uh, the Edward Said uh, mural that we have at San Francisco State. And part of the mural celebration was Gapsa General Union of Palestine students invited Omar Barghouti to come and give remarks at the at the ceremony. The Zionists attacked the event. I mean, by attack, I mean they smeared the event. They smeared Omar Barghouti. They smeared the Ahmed program. They smeared Dr. Bladi. They smeared Gups. The university president Corrigan, Robert Corrigan at the time, his response was to cut the searches for the hires in 2009, right. under the pretext that. 
it was uh, there was uh, because of the 2008 economic crash that the university was cash strapped and they could no longer afford hiring a new professor. Supposedly, this was over 10 years ago. There was an economic recovery. Position was never reassigned. That's not, an, these are not financial decisions that they're making. These are political decisions that they're using the finance to legitimize their, their, uh, their decisions. This is the same thing they did with COVID. Under COVID, they cut Ahmed classes by 66%, the course offerings. What courses that Dr. Bahadi taught as the only professor of the department, they ended up forcibly, uh, 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 by, she didn't, this was, um, she had to teach courses outside of the Ahmed program for the first time. They forced her to teach pro classes outside of the Ahmed program in the fall. Like she's the only Ahmed professor. Now she can't even teach an Ahmed class. They, she has to teach a different class. And then what they ended up doing was they, they, you know, they're hiring, they're firing all the lecturers that we had lined up. They're not, they're not giving, they're not allowing the, 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 the program to grow. And so when we're talking about kind of like they're, they're canceling a classroom, Yes, it's significant, it's huge. You know, the implications, I'm not trying to diminish them, they're huge, but they're part and parcel of the fact that they're also canceling entire courses, canceling entire programs. Like we know that under, by the way, like the, just to kind of finish the narrative here, um, California governor issued an, uh, issued a statement saying that all funding, all university funding will be restored to uh, 2020, 2021 or 2020 uh, levels, essentially saying that the huge scare, the huge financial, um, the huge financial kind of divestment that, or um, it's not divestment, what's it called? Um, I mean, they were, they, they were Deficit, projecting us. Yeah. yeah, well, they were, they were trying to undertake yet more austerity measures, mm -hmm. right? defund public spending and all this stuff. So he said that actually they're reversing course and they're not gonna defund the university. They're gonna restore the funding. So they're gonna restore all the classes. They haven't done that. And as I said, if they, even though they announced that they're restoring all the funding, the summer, Ahmed summer classes are gone. They cut them from the books, right? So there are talks about how we can kind of respond to that. I'm not gonna go into, cause it's not, they're not done yet, but it, we may do something kind of outside of the, um, outside, we may not, I don't know. I don't wanna go into it yet because there's still so many decisions, but um, like even one of the things that we were actually discussing before getting on the call was like, one of the options that we had was, okay, they canceled the formal official online summer classes. We can do open classes on Facebook because we've known about this before they canceled. Well, now they canceled the Facebook page. Now we can't even even do that. Do you see? Like, it's it's so embedded. So, um, I mean, it's, yeah, I'll just stop there. But I think that I also wanted to, actually it won't, because I wanted to talk about the UC's academic, uh, academic Senate, yeah. because they have taken action. Yeah. Right, so the UC, so, University of California, is separate from CSU, which is the California State University System, um, and SF State, just for our listeners and, and viewers, SF State is part of the California State University System, UC Merced is part of the University of California, so yeah, yeah, talk about what the, the University of California um, did recently. Yeah, and I think it's, I think that um, it's significant because the first thing that happened is they, I guess, and one thing I wanted to say about the way that UCs operate is that they operate as one university with multiple campuses. Right. So this is their logic, right? So like it's the University of California and then the various, like Berkeley, LA, 
uh, Riverside, uh, Davis, all of them, right? So Merced, so what they do is they have these like joint committees and councils. So the University Committee on Academic Freedom, um, this is like the university-wide, issued a statement to, um, issued a statement and uh, to the, their subcommittee of the academic senate. So that committee issued a statement to the whole academic senate. And in it, I just want to read their concluding paragraph where they say, as UCAF, so the University of California Academic Freedom, has said before, and it's quote, the university's responsibility to protect academic freedom and freedom of expression cannot be outsourced, close quote taking the legal steps necessary to provide clarity about what kinds of academic activities the law allows is ultimately the university's responsibility, not that of Zoom or any other private company. Um, and the, another section is um, our faculty and students, quote, should not be required to await and undergo criminal prosecution to know whether their academic activities are protected by the First Amendment or criminalized under the material support law. And this is key. They're basically saying to the provost of the university, how dare you? Like, yeah. A, how, you know, how dare you take these steps that essentially um, move forward as if these students are engaging in these criminal, which they're not. In fact, nobody is, right? None, nobody's doing that. That's not even a question that the lawyers are entertaining. The lawyers, legal counsel that we've discussed that this is ridiculous, right? So I wanna make that very clear. These are meritless accusations. Dis but despite their meritlessness, they are still being um, operated on by university officials and corporate officials as if they are fact, and they are not. And that, you know, that is, that is what's kind of underpinning all of this is they are moving forward as if we have already committed a crime when no crime has been, has been committed, right? And, you know, that's not new, right? We know that this is the, this is the unfortunate reality of how this, of how, how, how our societies, you know, how power operates in our society, right? Um, and as Omar, you were talking about, and I think you can talk more about, but um, what ended up happening was then the academic senate took the statement that the UC, the Academic Freedom Committee issued, and they forwarded it to, they, they, didn't, they forwarded it with their own statement. So they added another statement and they sent it to Michael Drake, the president of the University of California. Um, and in it, they uh, lay out the concerns. Um, they lay out the, all of the concerns that are, uh, that have been presented by the Academic Freedom Committee. And they are pushing now the university president, uh, UC president, to take action to prevent these sorts of things from happening again. At the, you know, not only the, accu the accusations of criminal activity, uh, but also the, the censorship. So the two parts here. And might as we add that these accusations are rooted in Islamophobia. I mean, you know, they're, 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 this is very self-evident, right? right? The accusation of Islamophobia is sufficient to mark one as, you know, the, the, no, the accusation of terrorism is enough to mark one as terrorism, right? You are guilty upon accusation. Like, why? Because our names are, you know, the, uh, the Ahmed program. Like, you know, it's, Anyway. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, the University of California and most other university systems and administrations um, have been 
you know, like um, very quick to do these preemptive censorship acts um, because they're scared of losing federal funding um, because Israel lobby groups, you know, threaten them with uh, all sorts of litigation. They say that, you know, for example, if you have a Palestine-centered event on campus, you know, it could make some Jewish students um, feel uncomfortable and therefore would violate Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you know, over discrimination. Um, in completely baseless accusations um, that you know have been thrown out by the Department of Education <laughs> when they've been you know when these complaints have been filed, but nonetheless, um, you know these university administrations are very um, scared of litigation. They listen to their donors first, um, and and they're very happy to kind of accommodate Israel lobby requests. Um, you know, even when it comes to censoring their own members of faculty. Um, and it's, it's just, it's phenomenal. Um, with that said, what, how are academics and students um, fighting back? And, and what is the recourse, uh, you know, after the, the event in September and now just, uh, you know, very recently at UC Merced? Omar, do you want to take this one? Sure. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll get it started, and then if there's anything I leave out, you know, feel yeah. free to jump in. I mean, uh, definitely, you know, we've seen. Um, so you know what happened after um, September, for example. You know, there was the basically there was a sort of a U.S. Act B kind of week of action. Um, you know, where basically um, universities all over the country sort of staged their own open classrooms. You know, along with a video, you know, of Leila Khaled basically challenging this, you know, and on Zoom, the point is do it on Zoom, sort of challenge the censorship. And several were censored, you know, as I believe even Electronic Intifada reported, right? You yeah. saw that New York University, I think, was one of the most prominent ones. Um, and so, you know, it, which was interesting because, you know, on the one hand, they're solidarity events, but they also show that this is kind of an ongoing campaign, right? But at least I think in a sense, there was something in the public record you know, that that was happening. Um, there were academic organizations who signed on to statements basically protesting, um, you know, this is a violation of academic speech. You had AAUP coming out, you know, when really criticizing, you know, what Zoom and what tech companies were doing. And so I think, you know, really academically, there was a movement of recognizing the larger significance of what was happening. Well, I should say the specific and larger significance, because I think both contexts should not be displaced. So I think the mobilization on this, and also, you know, you had organizations like the FIRE, which, you know, I think politically is a little bit back and forth, but ultimately they did defend this as, you know, being yeah, very much a First Amendment. Exactly. Organization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that, you know, there was kind of a strength in that mobilization because, you know, it really allowed for something that a lot of different forces and organizations could plug into. Meanwhile, you know, as Palestinian and Palestinian-led organizations, you know, we also sort of tried to, challenge this, you know, as directly a violation or an attack really upon Palestinian peoplehood, Palestinian identity, um, and collectivities, you know, uh, such as the Palestine Feminist Working Group, you know, released an important statement about how this is not just the silencing of, you know, one open classroom, it's not just the silencing of Leila Khaled, it's really, you know, a reinforcement of 
the patriarchal violence, you know, that Zionism ultimately upholds. So it's not just the silencing of Palestinian voices, it's the silencing of Palestinian feminist voices and narratives. So it's an ongoing kind of symbolic recreation and reinfliction of the very, you know, kind of founding violence that Zionism initiates, you know, with its ethnic cleansing, with its colonization, and with its, you know, machinations of apartheid. So Really, this is, you know, at the lexical level, at the symbolic level, the violence of Zionism being reinforced all over again. So I think, you know, while there's a lot of um, emphasis put into challenging narratives, I think that there is a kind of power in that because a lot of times what these institutions will rely on is this kind of, you know, our hands are tied, you know, there's an official sort of decree and we just have to follow it in reality. They don't have to follow anything. They're making their own choices. And so when people push back and say, this is actually not the full story, there's something that's being left out. There's people that are being silenced. You know, then really there's something larger that I think acts on the public imagination. And I think that allows for greater mobilization. Yeah. It just, this whole thing just seems really, once again, Palestine is the sort of canary in the coal mine because it's, uh, it's a complete corporate takeover really on every level. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, we're supposed to be in the future. We're in the future and we have video phones. Um, but the, these, you know, these corporations are just using uh, the new technology and to basically aggregate more power to themselves, you know? So it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a really scary time really in a lot of ways. Um, and it, I find it really interesting as well how um, actor IL has got involved. You know, yeah. one of Israel's uh, troll armies, essentially. You know, they're they they're funded. It's it's a big one organization. You know, it is an app, but um, I think it's it's almost downplaying it to just describe it as an app because it's an organization which is is founded, which is. Um, has it's funded to the tune of a, a million dollars a year that we know of um, partly by the state of israel partly by the adelsons the casino billionaires and israel lobby funders um and it is run and coordinated by israel's ministry of strategic affairs so it, it's very much linked to the state of israel it very much pushes the agenda of the state of israel so we we can see that um this is something that you know is important for um it's important enough that the state of israel feels like it's a priority that they should be trying to sabotage so yeah there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of issues here that you know not that people in general should be concerned about not only palestine solidarity activists yeah i, I think you're right about that if i can just chime in really quickly i mean i i think that that is the other factor, you know, um, in sort of some of the statements that we tried to put together for support for Ahmed studies, we did note that this is always tied to Israeli government aligned organizations, you know, but we also know, as you're saying, you know, I believe since 2016, The Intercept was reporting that Facebook was working with the Israeli government to silence, uh, to censor Palestinian content, right? And if anything, this idea, you know, the so-called content violations where people are getting their posts taken down, their pages deleted for temporary, usually amounts of time is only increasing, right? And you saw recently there was the petition from Jewish Voice for Peace, you know, to oppose 
the word Zionist being included, you know, as sort of interchangeable with Jewish person in Facebook's hate speech policies. Mm. And of course, you know, you see reporting from Al-Shebeka about how YouTube has also been collaborating in the censorship, you know, in addition to what we've seen specifically in the case of Ahmed, which I think is very much at the crooks of all of this. We know that the Israeli government has been working with tech companies to censor this content for years now. So I, I, I think you're right to flag that and it is very important for people to be aware of, you know, but also to realize that, you know, it's a huge problem when things that should be open source, when things that are supposed to be about communication are really being so regulated both by the profit margin and, you know, by um, various forces of, you know, colonial supremacy, of white supremacy and of political repression. You know, people, I think there's a kind of dialectical um, nature to social media where people rightly point out that it allowed for a lot of inroads in terms of how you could challenge official narratives. Now you can record yourself. Now you can upload things. Now you can show videos, you know, of things that the state otherwise wants covered up. All that's true. But over the years, I think the companies have also found ways to really refine the profit margin, refine the surveillance margin, and really refine, you know, their hold and their stranglehold on what people can and can't say on who should and shouldn't be watched and who should and shouldn't be censored. And I think that if, you know, if we don't fight back, these types of things are only gonna become more entrenched, more invasive and more politically repressive, even than we're seeing now. Yeah, I mean, I think they really are expanding their power because, you know, in previous generations of technology, you know, just telephones, mobile phones, yeah, they were all owned by corporations, but by and large, um, states still had the power over uh, what can and can't be said over the telephone, you know, within certain margins, at least anyway. Uh, but now we're reaching the stage where corporations, these massive um, unaccountable Silicon Valley corporations, um, are just uh, entrenching more power to themselves, really. So it's, uh, it's very dangerous. And it's all terms of service. That's the thing. You know, we can't have Leila Khala because of our quote unquote terms of service. You can't do this class because of our terms of service. Mm. Ultimately, what is the political subtext to terms of service? We know what it is. And the more institutions under this neoliberal moment continue to outsource themselves to the private interests of capital and repression, the more we're going to see these types of things. And ultimately, everything is going to become, you know, you know, quotidian as who can and can't say what to things is even more dystopian to, you know, what is and isn't um, permitted sort of political act. If I, well, if I might um, say one thing, um, uh, I think, I mean, it, it has to be said that this is kind of the result of an increased, you know, calls for censorship, which has been supported not only by um, political elites in the United States, but also the media. And it's, you know, we saw it like a climax during the 2016 uh, US presidential elections, but now you've got like a bipartisan chorus uh, that's begging Silicon Valley overlords to do their authoritarian bidding in the name of fact-checking and in the name of, you know, political ads and so on. And even people like, you know, New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have um, have joined these calls. And so it's it's always, you know, and, and w when you actually look at these oversight boards that, you know, have been have been hired by, for example, Facebook, you see, I mean, at, at least in Facebook's example, Facebook hired the former director general of Israel's justice ministry in that oversight board that, uh, that determines what content to censor or permit on 
its social media platform. And, and you know, this, this, this former director general, Emmy Palmer, she headed the justice ministry um, when, uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, you remember, uh, Nora and Asa, when Ayelet Shaked uh, became notorious for uh, making a Facebook post inciting the genocide of Palestinians. And so, and so this is the person that's on the Facebook oversight board. That's yeah, crazy. I didn't I mean, realize she was, yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize she was uh, at that time. Yeah. It's, it's pretty astonishing. Um, Omar and Salim, if people want to learn more, especially about AMED studies, the Arab and, and Muslim ethnicities and diasporas program at, at San Francisco State, um, or what's happening, uh, you know, around the UC Merced event, um, where can people go? <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, you've been censored from all of these regular platforms, but how can people kind of stay abreast of what's happening? Nora, I think you just published an article in Electronic Intifada, so that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> came out today. So. <laughs> So there's uh, that's that's a I mean um, and then there's another article coming out tomorrow um, written by Dr. Bahadi, Dr. Uh, Malloy, uh, Sean Malloy, who's a professor at UC Merced, Dr. Kinakawa, who I discussed, and myself. Uh, I believe it's coming out in Mondawai sometime this week, maybe today or tomorrow. Um, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace issued a um, uh, call to action uh, regarding Facebook. So there's an action alert going around JVP. Um, maybe we can kind of share the links and it can go on the podcast when, it, when you all upload it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Regarding Facebook, we, um, so I'll tell you what we did. Because um, this is, what happened was the week before, fa- the week before the event, Facebook had already uh, taken down our Facebook page. Okay, now it says Facebook page, but we, but it was Palestine Prisoners Day, April 17, and we had an event. Um, and what we ended up doing was we worked with uh, our um, orgs. We worked with kind of orgs that we historically work with, and we used their, not used, but we collaborated on their social media pa- uh, platforms, and we um, sent out the, um, sent out the live stream on their platforms, like their Facebook page and their YouTube page. Um, and we've done it historically with a number of different orgs. It's not just that one time, like, you know, when even, you know, a lot of our webinars, like, you know, for instance, I'm you're part of PYM. PYM has uh, hosted a number of these things. Eyewitness Palestine, um, National SJP, um, Samizun, like a lot of these, a lot of uh, different orgs kind of like will also use their, their presence to do that. That may be the route that we have to take into in the immediate future until we can get our Facebook page back. Because mind you, it's not just the Facebook page they took down; they also took down our YouTube page right. months ago. So we like what we have left is uh, we have a Twitter page, um, so you can follow us on Twitter, um, Ahmed Studies, and we have a uh, I believe Instagram. And I believe Instagram's also owned by Facebook. The irony yeah. is that they didn't take down the Instagram. Page, but they took down the Facebook page. Like, I, <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> um, like, 
what, which also raises what something that Omar was talking about earlier about Leila Khaled actually spoke on Zoom a week after our event in September. I think she spoke October 1st or something like that. So what, so Dr. Bledhi always asked what happened between September 23rd and October 1st, where Zoom said that she was, you know, a terrorist and couldn't speak on September 23rd, but she wasn't a terrorist on October 1st and she could speak. Like what kind of, what, what kind of ridiculousness is this, right? So um, I think part of why I also want to raise that is the attacks are not accidental. They are going after the Ahmed program and they are going after Dr. Bahadi. Like this is the this is not the first time that they have attacked and undermined the program. Let's not forget they filed two lawsuits uh, against San Francisco State because uh, naming the act the actions of the Ahmed program, Dr. Bahadi, and GOPS as primary um, uh, primary grievances, if you will, that they filed in the lawsuit. One was in federal court. One was in state court. Uh, one Dr. Abdadi was named explicitly as a, she was the only faculty member who was named in the lawsuit. Like the, the, she had to get a lawyer because they targeted her in the lawsuit, right? Everybody else was university administrators. She was the only one that was a university fac a staff, a faculty uh, that was named. So let's not forget, like they've, they're going after her, right? Yeah. They're going after her because of her past and advocacy work. So um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're fighting the good fight. We're pushing back. Um, we're trying to get our platforms back. We're trying to use alternative platforms. You know, the thing is, is that we, we, we shouldn't be excluded from these spaces, which is what we're all talking about now. These companies shouldn't have the authority that they have, but we're also talking about these companies are rotten to the core, right? You know, it's not like if once they restore the Ahmed Facebook page that we're all going to end it. No, Facebook is rotten. You know, Google alphabet they're rotten like these these things these corporations these monopolies they're not they're, they're not a, they're not a good <laughs> right <They're, laughs> so so um you know we can talk more and more about that but but it's not that like once we get it everything's no no the, the fight continues um but in the meantime we, we demand our, our page back we demand our archive back we demand you know this is a this is a platform that people use right um, hopefully Facebook is a passing phenomenon, right? As, you know, as Dr. Badi always says, Zionism is a passing phenomenon, you know, hopefully, you know, colonial, you know, empires have come and gone, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the Roman empire fell, right? So, you know, <laughs> so it's, uh, these things don't last forever. So, um, you know, in the meantime, we're, we're sticking it out. Well, thank you. And we will put all of those links um, on the podcast post that accompanies this uh, podcast um, on the Electronic Intifada. Omar Zaza and Salim Shahade, thank you so much for all of your work and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. And we'll, of course, update our listeners and viewers on, um, on you know, on whatever happens next. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.